Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, who do you think is going to win the World Cup? Maybe Argentina? Yeah, I'm thinking that, too. Uh, I mean, it may just be because they won big today, of course. We'll see. Maybe France will win, like, 7-1 to one tomorrow or something. Yeah, there's some, there's some guy who did this long bet for like each major sport and he's hit all of them like he picked Kansas to win the NCAA tournament and Golden State to win the NBA championship and if France wins he makes like millions of dollars on this like five dollar bet or something well I hope he hedged uh you know, but none of that really matters. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you that's this. These are things you, you don't ha- you can't worry about too much in Kentucky uh, as of right now. But that might be something. Yeah. Listen, that was that was a great transition. But maybe at the end of this year, it may be different because what we're talking about this week is the legislative session. No guests today. Uh, a bit of a session preview. Of course, it starts in less than a month. Uh, what are we going to be doing in the 2023 short legislative session? Um, I, Jasmine and I both dug into one one topic uh, more specifically a little deeper and then we have a lot of quick hits that are around things that might come up in the session today so I'm going to be talking about income tax reform we're almost guaranteed to get one income tax bill this year so I'm going to be talking about what that is but there is the potential for even more and then Jasmine's going to be talking about marijuana reform something that uh, is a perennial topic in Kentucky uh, but very little ever actually gets done and Jasmine will talk to us about um, whether or not that's going to be true this year, we'll see. We'll see. Um, all right. So without any further ado, I'll talk a little bit about income tax. So, you know, the income tax reform is likely going to be on the list of items that the GOP wants to accomplish this session. Uh, just to, like for a little bit of background, our neighbor to the south, Tennessee, they have zero income tax. And that's been the case for a very long time, maybe forever. I don't know if Tennessee ever had an income tax, but they don't now. And that's always been a point of comparison between Kentucky and Tennessee. Uh, you know, there are a lot of legislative leaders in the Republican Party who have districts that either border or are very close to Tennessee. Uh, and so they're always talking about how, you know, people live in Tennessee and commute to Kentucky for work just because they don't have to have the income tax. But but Tennessee's not alone in that. Places like Texas, Florida, South Dakota, and Wyoming also do not have an income tax. And really for several years since the GOP took over, they have talked a lot about shifting from what they call a production tax to a consumption tax. And those are you know, ideological terms uh, to a way for them to say that they would prefer sales taxes to income taxes. And just to do my best to give the conservative viewpoint here, their viewpoint is that that taxation will reduce the demand for labor. You know, there's this economic term, if you take microeconomics, there's this term called deadweight loss. uh, And and that gets tossed around a lot. And, And the idea behind that is that taxes reduce the amount of money people make from working, you know, because the state takes some of it in taxes. And that discourages the entire act of working. You know, the the amount that you can earn from doing the job reduces, so it lessens your likelihood to actually do the job. And so they say, you know, taxing consumption instead of production would promote frugality uh, and, and right living. And so that's kind of, I guess, the, the, the idea there. And that, that framework, that microeconomic framework, is incredibly simplistic. And most modern economists say the story told by conservatives le- leaves out a lot of important context. Uh, 
I, I think that that's true. As somebody who has a, a degree and most of an advanced degree in economics, uh, liberals would argue that conservatives want to shift taxes from income to consumption because income taxes hit a higher portion of the income of wealthy people. And shifting to a consumption tax, like a sales tax, shifts the burden from rich to people to poor people. Lower income people pay a higher proportion of their income income in sales taxes than what than rich people do. Okay, so that's kind of the ideological backdrop here. In 2022, last session, the legislature passed HB8, which immediately reduced Kentucky's income tax to 5% and had been 6% before. It was slightly graduated. I think some people paid a slightly lesser level than 6%. And in 2022, it shifted to a flat 5% income tax. And then it put in place a framework to reduce the income tax further. Whenever the state's revenues exceeded a certain amount, you know, they would cut by a half percent if the legislature gave it approval. So due due to record surpluses from lots of things, uh, which we'll get into, the income tax is set to dip again this year to 4.5% as long as the legislature gives approval to it, which is why I think it's highly likely, almost guaranteed, that the legislature will take up at least one income tax bill this year. So there has been some writing about this ahead of this session. So Jason Bailey of Kentucky Policy, the director of Kentucky Policy, he wrote about the growth in Kentucky's income tax revenues under a piece which called Kentucky surpluses a mirage. His point is that inflation has really driven Kentucky's overall you know, income up. The income of people has gone up due to inflation. And that without that continued inflation, you know, Kentucky's real income will likely fall in the future, and we will have this con- context of lower income taxes, so we would have less of a safety net to kind of fall back upon. Bailey's research also hits at a lot of other major points that conservatives like to, t- like to talk about when they're discussing tax reform, such as the idea that tax cuts will spur population growth, or that sales taxes on new services will make up the difference for these income tax cuts. So if you uh, are interested in this subject further, I really recommend you go check check out that article. It's free. It's Everything they do is free. All of the things that they do are well-researched, have good policy background. So jef- definitely check out Jason Bailey's piece. All right, Jasmine, check in. Does all this make sense so far? Yes, it does. Good. Okay, so within this 2020 HB8, 2022 HB8 framework, the legislature is required to take action to confirm this cut of income taxes down to four percent. And I, you know, that that's almost guaranteed to happen. Um, they're 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 almost guaranteed to to, to cut it back to four percent. I think I said four and a half percent earlier. It, it's four percent that they're going to cut it to. The real question is whether or not they do even more and the 2023 session. So there was a panel hosted by the Kentucky Chamber and Representative Michael Meredith, who I believe is there in Warren County, he talked about how 2022's HB8 was, quote, designed to complement local tax reform, unquote, and then reiterated a commitment to consumption-based tax system. Um, You know, so what this local tax reform might be is something that is a little bit of a mystery. There were a few kind of changes to way that local local entities could to do taxes in HB8, but nothing super serious. Uh, Meredith and other panelists said the legislature would take a methodical approach uh, and would, quote, bring many groups to the table, unquote, when, when discussing further tax reform. So that seems to indicate that further tax reform is coming. I don't necessarily know if that means it's coming this year, though. It's a, it's a short session. Usually they deal with taxes in a longer session where they're doing a budget so that they can kind of make the budget match the revenue. 
Uh, I don't anticipate significant changes to the way the state levies taxes, but there could be some change to how the states allow localities to levy taxes. That would be something I think that would be possible to do in a short session. So just going back into an even further uh, bit of context here. So Mayor Greg Fisher of Louisville was a major proponent of this thing called the local option sales tax. And he talked a lot about that during his second term. Uh, which I believe, you know, that was like 2014 to 2018. It was kind of, you know, th- that seemed like something that was a lot more possible uh, back then. And and that that local option sales tax would have allowed cities to levy an additional 1% sales tax for a specific purpose for localities. Um, many Republicans in the legislature were in favor of this idea. Uh, the Kentucky Chamber, I think, might have even brought the idea to the table. And so it seemed like something that might happen, but it, it never did. Um it's yet to be seen if something like this could be what that like local tax reform is that Representative Meredith was talking about. Passing the LOST, it's a terrible acronym. You shouldn't call a tax reform LOST, but the, the LOST, the local option sales tax, <laughs> um, that passing the LOST would require a constitutional amendment. Also something that's unlikely to happen in a short session because you don't get the ballot again until the next year. Um, and, and so I don't really have any idea uh, what what will happen with that. And also, I don't really know where Greg Greenberg stands on this. Like, Greg Fisher was a big cheerleader for it, and, and that was one of the things that was kind of driving it to get finished. But, you know, if Craig Greenberg doesn't want it, I don't see the legislature taking this up at all. Um, and, and, you know, uh, one of the things about it is that, like I said earlier, you know, consumption taxes, like sales taxes, shift the tax burden from – uh, rich people to poor people, you know, the higher proportion of the in, of the income of poor people are taken in sales taxes uh, than rich people. So that could be a reason why somebody like Craig Greenberg or other, you know, Democrat people, Democratic people might be opposed to uh, that kind of sales tax. Now, localities are extremely constrained in the revenue that they're able to raise. So, you know, there, there's lots of reasons to think that the localities. Louisville included might be in favor of this, but but we just don't know. I don't know where Craig Greenberg stands on, on the local option sales tax. It wasn't a big issue during the, the, the mayoral campaign this year. One of the biggest questions I have, though, is whether or not additional local tax reforms are going to be taken up by the legislature this year. I don't know. They might be. They might not be. But it is certain to me that they will at least take on that bill to reduce the uh, the income tax down to 4%, which seems very, very likely uh, in, in the next year. Because Republicans in the, uh, in the House and Senate hold about 80% of the seats in both chambers, nothing can really stop them from doing whatever they want. So even if it's not this year, it does seem like Kentucky's income tax has a limited shelf life. I think it's, it's highly likely in the next decade, uh, maybe even less than that, that Kentucky will go the way of Tennessee and have no income tax. Uh, that's bad, in my opinion. Uh, the big question after that is like, what accompanying cuts in services are gonna are gonna come with that? Because if we the income tax is a huge, huge portion of Kentucky's overall revenue, and so you can't just replace that without increasing the sales tax substantially. Doing something to offset that revenue that would be very strange or different. Uh, the income tax is a very straightforward way people are used to paying it. The federal government has one; it's not going anywhere. Um, and and so even though I do expect that Kentucky's income tax probably has a limited shelf life, I don't know what it looks like for Kentucky not to have it. Um, so anyways, that's that's something uh, that we'll definitely be talking about more in the upcoming longer legislative session. Uh, and, and also I think that like almost 
almost every, if not every Republican gubernatorial candidate has made this kind of a major plank of their platform that they would like to see a shift from income to sales taxes. So Jasmine, uh, does that make sense for what, what might happen with our income taxes in the 2023 session? Yeah, it does make sense. That, you know, this has been a Republican priority for a while. Um, Forever. Really? Yeah, they, they reduced it from, well, I guess like it's been a bigger one since they took over the legislature yeah. a few years ago. So it's been a lot easier. They, you know, reduced it from six to five. And I think now we'll go to four and a half. Um, but I... I also read that their plan is to get it down to zero yeah. um, in 10 years. So, Well, there you go. Yeah, and, and one of the things that the, under the current plan, like one of the things that is worth pointing out is like we're, we're cutting it to 4%. And the thing that they're going to say is like, well, we have lots and lots of extra revenue. We're running a surplus right now. We have more money than we had planned to. Um, so we need to cut revenue. And the thing is like uh, we are tying forever tax cuts – Mm-hmm. to temporary surpluses like we had like that's one of the things the major points that jason bailey made in his piece was these these surpluses are a mirage he called them a mirage and, and that that means like they're temporary um we have a lot of money now because of inflation because of a couple of like there's been a lot of support for uh you know incomes for people's incomes that's been given to them by the federal government that money is taxable all mm-hmm. of that kind of is going on here um so in, if we have a major downturn in the next four or five years and people need a lot of help, the, the government might not necessarily be in a place to provide it because there won't be as much money coming in due to these tax cuts, which go on forever, even though these surpluses are temporary. That's that's kind of one of the major points I didn't want to make, make sure I made. Um, yeah, uh, definitely read the whole piece by Jason Bailey. Um, there's also, uh, I would definitely recommend reading the chambers, uh, you know, write up of a lot their, their event where they had a lot of lawmakers come and talk about stuff that they wanted to tackle in this session. So there's a lot more information there. Uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's the income tax. Uh, so Jasmine, what's likely to happen with marijuana this, this next year in the 2023 session? Okay. So just to, you know, catch everyone up on where we are. We haven't talked about this extensively, but a few weeks ago, Governor Bashir signed an executive order allowing eligible individuals to use medical marijuana that has been purchased legally outside of Kentucky. Um, and the, the way he is doing that is he's essentially like granting those people a pardon through executive order pursuant to Section 77 of the Kentucky Constitution, which is his pardon power. Um, And it would only be for possession of marijuana charges. And it only applies to um, certain people with certain illnesses or conditions. The order goes into effect on January 1st. And Bashir cited the General Assembly's failure to act um, on marijuana legislation. He was like, obviously, we'd prefer to have legislation um but we don't (laughs) and he also listed all of our neighboring and other southern states that have passed medical marijuana legislation um and i i think it's like 37 states now it's the majority um including most neighboring states and and even more like deep southern states have passed it in 
their last legislative session. The, the coded language in there is like other major Republican states have had some sort of marijuana reforming. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, including Mississippi and Alabama were the ones that he named that had just passed some legislation. And he also signed an executive order regulating Delta eight, which is like a cannabinoid. We did a whole, we did a show on it with Jim Higdon. Yeah. Yeah. Go back and listen to that. But it's, it's essentially like synthetic marijuana. I think that like or synthetic THC, that uh, that was accidentally or potentially accidentally legalized in the last farm bill and is basically unregulated by the federal government because of the way the farm bill was written. But yeah, it, go back and listen to that for more details. Uh, it, it's a very strange story for sure. So Daniel Cameron and other Republican officials have said that Bashir does not have the authority to do this, and the Attorney General is is reviewing both orders and and seeing. Um, what action he might take and you know i don't i don't know if he does he's doing this through the use of the pardon power but it's kind of like prospective pardon power um and i you know i haven't reviewed like what case law looks like on section 77 and so i don't know (laughs) what the answer is to that yeah, um, I mean, one of the things we learned at the end of the Bevan administration is that the pardon power is pretty broad. Um, that was something that we talked about quite a bit, quite a bit then. Um, but yeah, the perspective piece is kind of strange. I mean, I don't know how this might work. It's like if you are charged, I will pardon you, or like you are prospectively pardoned. I don't. Right. I, yeah. yeah. I, I haven't uh, seen the language of the executive order or of the case law either. Yeah. So that's what the executive order says, and then. Bashir also had a task force um, that showed that people polling suggested that 90% of adult Kentucky adults supported legalizing medical cannabis. And they also opened it, you know, for online public comment and 98.6% of comments were in support of medical marijuana. And so that's kind of put the issue back in the spotlight right before the legislative session. Um, But in the last week or so, we've gotten some comments from Senate President Stivers, who has seemed to be against it in the past. Um, And I I don't think that's changed. Um, When asked about the prospects of a bill for the session, President Stivers said, we just got an article that overdose hotlines and Norton's poison control, it's up 28% because of young people using marijuana. <laughs> so um, then Norton, because um, he cited to Norton's poison control, Norton's spokesperson released a statement that said that comment about the study is not related to something the Poison Control Center reported. It's a study from somewhere else, no idea where, and he happened to mention that we run the Poison Center. Um, so Norton <laughs> didn't confirm um, that statistic. Yeah. but Norton just getting, like, sideswiped here. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so the article that he's citing um, is from the New York, New York Post, and... It's like a clinical toxicology study and the article or the study shows that 
national numbers of poison control calls of abuse or misuse of cannabis in people aged 6 to 18 rose from 510 cases in 2000 to a little over 1,700 cases in 2020. So that's that's 20 years. And, and it's also, there's nothing about overdoses. It's just yeah. calls about... Misuse or abuse yeah. of cannabis, and so and and it could be it, it could be like recreational marijuana. It could be like all kinds of stuff. And this, like what we're talking about here, is you know medicinal marijuana, like medical marijuana. Yeah, and I I certainly think that there's probably an increase in calls, and I think that's because of the the use of gummies and edibles. I think that would be my guess. I think that that's highly likely. And then also another thing about it too is like with the legal framework of it changing so much, people are probably more willing to call the poison center if something needs to happen because of like a marijuana situation. Mm-hmm. Whereas like when it was completely prohibited, people were like, well, I mean, this person seems like they're in really bad shape, but we'll just try to write it out because we don't want to go to prison. Like that, you know, because of legalization in many other states they may be like let's get this person some help right now whereas yeah they might not have yeah right so i think i think there's a lot of reasons that that number has increased um but there's also no reference to like 28 percent anything in the article either um and then the article also said that marijuana exposure cases have exceeded alcohol abuse cases and they're continuing to exceed them so while maybe misuse of marijuana calls have go- gone up, alcohol abuse calls have continued to decrease. There were also deaths reported in the study, um, but they were rare, and the majority of them also involved opioid abuse, so um, not just marijuana. Yeah, and that's also something that we're, we've... I mean, I, I don't know how... I, I, how much of it is 100% true, but you do get these stories often coming from b- police departments, especially about marijuana that's been laced with fentanyl, um, which is an opioid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that comes from having it being in a prohibited market. If it's a regulated market and people have to, like, go to a dispensary to get marijuana, the likelihood that it's laced with fentanyl is significantly lower than if yeah. you have to buy it from a dealer. So that's another thing that, like, hey, maybe we should reform our laws around this to prevent this kind of thing from happening. Yeah. So anyways, that's the study that Senate President Stivers was talking about um, when he gave that quote. He also gave another quote um, and he said that people want to live in places that are safe and the hipster culture in Louisville isn't safe and that people are moving away to places like northern Kentucky. <laughs> I don't really even know like what to say about that. I saw this quote. So this is in the same, I guess this is in the same sort of like, uh, this sounds like a very like stream of consciousness uh, type of uh, interview with President Stivers here. He sounds like he's a little wonky with a couple of these quotes. Now, the man has always played a little fast and loose with talking about stuff, which is not super becoming of the Senate president, a legislative body leader. Um, but yeah, Louisville is definitely growing, maybe not as much as other cities our size. Uh, and there are some people that are moving from Louisville to Northern Kentucky, but there's also lots and lots of people coming from lots of places into Louisville as well. So that's 
kind of a funky funky thing to say we do we have a hipster culture though like what do you think what do you think jasmine i feel like every city has some like hipster subculture maybe but i think in louisville a lot of the hipster culture is like tied to churches yeah and so i don't think those people are smoking weed i don't know they could be but yeah i think of like i think of like this of louisville as having this like evangelical hipster coffee shop culture sometimes that's Um, that's probably but i think i think every i think every city like has those different subcultures so i don't really know um exactly what he was getting at do people say hipster anymore anyway i feel like that was the thing we said a lot when like, think, we were I in our 20s was something that like we said a lot in like 2014 yeah yeah that, i have not really heard people talk about hipsters since then i yeah i i mean i was probably a hipster back then i don't i mean maybe maybe yeah, I, you yeah your fixed gear bicycle yeah i could track stand with the best of you. <laughs> uh yeah, no, that 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 is an interesting term to use. It was a little bit of a flashback. I was thinking more like 2011, but you know, that that probably continued for quite a while anyway. Yeah, I Yeah, probably like the the first half of the 2010s. I feel like that's when we talked about hipster culture the most. Skinny, um, skinny jeans and PBR and fixed gear bicycles and beanies and yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So anyways, those are the quotes that we've gotten from the Senate president about medical marijuana and hipster culture. Um, yeah, it, it's related though somehow. I think, um, but a medical marijuana bill has now passed the House twice and then died in the Senate last year. Whitney Westerfield supported the bill for the first time. He had been against it in previous sessions, um, and he was quoted last year and said he thought that they had the votes. Um, but of course that was last year and it, and it still didn't come up for a vote on the floor and there are new members coming in and president Stivers still seems to be against it. And so, you know, he has a lot of power in the Senate. Um, the new members coming in, I think that there are, are six new Republican senators coming in, but the numbers haven't changed. Um, but maybe some of the ideologies have. I know there's at least a couple more um, of these like liberty type Republicans, which if they are in favor of liberty, you know, you think they <laughs> they might be in favor <laughs> of this, but I don't think they are. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they they seem a little high sometimes. That's true. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know where they're going to come down on it. It does seem like they're very conservative and very conservative people in my mind as well. Seem like they're likely to oppose liberalization, the marijuana laws. But yeah, um, yeah, you know, the, the whole legislature really kind of shifted after the election. We've got an entire new set of people, a whole bunch of new people coming in in both chambers on both sides. Um, I guess not that many different Democrats yet, uh, but on the in, on the Senate side. But but, you know, yeah, I think you're you're exactly right. Uh, we are in a situation where like the opposition of one single man, that one single man being Robert Stivers can certainly stifle the likelihood of something like this passing. I think. And, and he said. He said 
last year, he wouldn't get in the way of it if the majority of his caucus supported it. Um, but I think they they had the votes or were close to having the votes, and but not at a majority of their caucus, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. And so, it, you know, it it's died in the Senate twice. And so I, I don't know if, you know, Bashir's move pushes them to, to do something or um, makes them want to do something even less. <laughs> yeah. And it'll be interesting to see too, because like the, the, the gubernatorial election is kind of hanging over this. I mean, it seems like Andy Bashir is going to be using this as an issue to say like, yeah. I'm, I'm going to work really hard to get marijuana reform passed. Uh, and if you elect me, I'm going to continue this fight. The Republican legislature is stand, are standing in our way. There's no way a Republican's going to fight their own legislature about this sort of thing. So like that, that may shift the opinion or the approach of some Republicans, uh, but maybe not. And I don't really know what their strategy is going to be. And to be honest, I also don't fully know what the strategy of the Bashir side is going to be. Uh, but it seems like this will be an issue in the gubernatorial campaign. Uh, so that might change the, the environment as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. And so, you know, I think I think that's where we stand right now. And and we'll kind of, you know, see in the session um, what our new makeup, you know, how they feel about it and see where it goes. Yeah. All right. Well, those are two big issues we kind of wanted to talk about in depth, but there are a lot of other issues around the session that we wanted to at least talk about. So so first of all, like social issues uh, always play such a huge role in Kentucky's legislative sessions. And I really think there's going to be no difference in that in 2023. So first first on that topic, Bill Wesley um, or yeah, Bill Wesley, who's a representative from from Madison County. I think he might actually he might actually be from Estill County. I think he's from Ravenna. But anyways, that that man is pushing two anti-trans bathroom bills. Um, I guess there's two anti-trans bills, including one bathroom bill. Uh, these types of bills, these anti-trans uh, bills, bills that uh, really attack trans kids, have been filed every year for several years in a row, but they haven't really gone anywhere. But the right wing of the GOP caucus is getting bigger. It got bigger in uh, this most recent election. And I think it's probably only a matter of time before bills like these start moving in the legislature. Uh, and, and the fact that, that we are seeing um, these types of bills being passed in other states and very few consequences for those states in terms of economic pressures like we had seen uh, the few years before that. I, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen with these this year. This could be the year that they, they start to move. Um, and, and I have no idea if that's true or if they start to move how far they will go. Jasmine, do you have any any feeling or thoughts about what might happen to some of these bills? Do you see them going any further than they have in previous sessions? Uh, I agree with you that they could definitely go further than they have in previous sessions. Like some of these like social type of bills, you know, it, it may depend on what committee they're in and, and if that legislator supports them. There are certainly some Republican legislature legislators who are a little bit more moderate on these issues and just kind of want to let these bills go. And so, you know, I think it depends, but I think there's a good chance that they could go further than they have before with a new makeup of the caucus. Yeah, there there are definitely definitely several Republican legislators who are much more moderate on this than than Bill Wesley especially, but are there 
you know, 30. <laughs> That's the yeah, question. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so speaking of social issues, abortion has been front and center, I think, of every legislative session since the GOP took over in 2017. Uh, but given the Amendment 2 vote this year, that, that might change a little bit. Um, but like I just mentioned, you know, the GOP has gotten more conservative. Their caucus has grown quite a bit. There are a lot of new members who are of that liberty persuasion. Um, so it may again, take a more central role in um, in the, the session this year. One thing that will probably be on the docket, though, is uh, Representative Jason Nemes, who uh, is now in leadership. He's now in leadership. And he said during the Supreme Court case regarding Kentucky's trigger law that he would put a rape and incest exception into a bill this session. Um, you know, that was something that came up quite a bit in the Supreme Court case. And they were like, well, we can take care of that legislatively. I think Jason Emus was the person who was like, yeah, well, we can do that. And then they tried to like make that a part of the Supreme Court case, which was very strange. Um, so whether or not that materializes, how far that gets along in the process is quite a bit of a mystery to me. Um, but, you know, given the background of Amendment 2, of the Supreme Court case, of the entire kind of like backdrop of the way that abortion rights have happened since the, you know, the fall of Roe v. Wade, what role abortion plays in the 2023 session is a bit of an open question for me. Jasmine, what do you think is going to happen with abortion next year? I think Republicans see the Amendment 2 vote as something that happened because of Louisville. And they think Louisville doesn't represent the rest of the state and it would have passed if not for Louisville. They know that they still have the power. They have even more power growing their caucus. And so I I think they're still going to do what they want to do on abortion. I do think that it's likely that Jason Nemes or someone files a bill with rape or incest exceptions, but I don't, I have doubts that they would get it across the finish line. Yeah. Especially since it would go against like so many members votes in the 2022 session where they, they literally took a vote on this and every Republican voted against it. So it would be like a pretty significant flip flop, which would open them up probably in a Republican primary and in a general election if they faced one um, with, with charges of hypocrisy. So yeah. Yeah. And Jason Nemes is the one who introduced the amendment when they, when they pass the bill, um, And that it was defeated then. And so I I don't have any doubts that he might follow that bill. um, But I think whether his caucus supports it, you know, I don't know if that's there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is a big question to me because there are like things working in opposite directions where you have like a more conservative GOP caucus and you have this amendment to thing that that was all voted on at the same time. Um, So it is it is it is going to be strange. I I will say it is it you know, I I think you're right about the perceptions of Republicans, but a majority of House seats did vote against amendment Two. Um, so it wasn't just a Louisville thing, even if that is the perception of it. Um, you know, Louisville, Lexington, Northern Kentucky, and a lot of small cities across the state. Um, yeah, I I think that's right. Um, but 
I don't know that if they see it that way. Yeah, I I think you're I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, okay, so so those are like big ticket items, but there are a lot of other things that are likely going to be talked about. So so one issue is these things called gray machines, or as their supporters like to call them, skill machines. There was a nice write up of this this morning. Today is the 13th of December in the Courier Journal, and, and these things are likely to be regulated in some way during the 2023 session, and it may be an interesting discussion or fight on the Republican side. So what these things are, they're they're basically just slot machines. Uh, but supporters say that the, the, they're games that require a bit of skill, and that makes them legal. Uh, several legislators, including uh, Damon Thayer, chief among the people who are uh, not seeing it that way, who do not believe that these things are legal right now, that thinks they are illegal right now. So there are two competing bills working their way through the GOP caucus that deal with how to regulate these bills. One of them has the the strong support of the, the organization or like the, the manufacturer who makes these machines. Um, and wants to sell them to more places in Kentucky. So uh, that that's one of the bills. And the other bill is a much more strict regulation of these these machines, uh, which the group, I think they're called Pesomatic, does not support. Um, so Joe Sanka has a great write-up of the details of those two specific bills and who the supporters, kind of how the battle lines are being drawn. But this is likely to be a pretty significant fight or at least like discussion in the 2023 session. So be sure to check that out. Um, Jazz, I don't know if there's anything else that needs to be said. Do you have anything you want to say about gray machines? <laughs> no, I don't have anything to add. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so another thing that happened in the Courier-Journal in the past couple of weeks is uh, th- they published a series of articles by the education writer Mandy McLaren that criticized JCPS's use of what uh, what they call balanced literacy instead of basically just pure phonics uh, to teach children to lead uh, to read and and balanced literacy seeks to do a lot of like work on comprehension and work on phonics in, in like work on phonics in conjunction with a bunch of other things including comprehension and including a bunch of other uh, topics around reading um, and McLaren lays out the case that pure phonics is a much more successful way to teach people to read. Now, uh, JCPS has been defensive of their approach internally, uh, apparently. There have been like a lot of emails that have leaked out to Mandy McLaren that she has since published. Uh, I guess she has her own supporters inside of JCPS as well that are teaching reading. And uh, she, she published a lot of those of, of the JCPS folks being defensive in the wake of, of that, that set of articles. And McLaren and several of the people quoted in her articles uh, that she, you know, seems to be supportive of would like to see the state change its approach uh, to how Louisville or see the state intervene uh, and how JCPS is teaching children to read. Um, I I think the article gives a lot of cover um, for state government to kind of meddle in JCPS affairs. Uh, You know, JCPS seems to uh, not be, uh, you know, gung-ho about changing their approach to, to reading or teaching children to read in the wake of these articles. And um, it will probably uh, result in several bills, which will be, uh, you know, you know the, the um, Republican majority in the state legislature basically trying to force JCPS to change its approach um, towards teaching reading. Uh, I, I think we're, we're going to see some stuff around that um, this, this session. Jasmine, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think... We definitely might see that in the session. And 
I've kind of read bits and pieces um, of of Mandy McLaren's coverage on like this reading issue. And I, you know, she's, she's not just a journalist. She's a former teacher. Um, so she also has that experience and comes with that perspective too. Um, so I'll be interested to see what happens here. And I, I probably need to read more of these articles. <laughs> yeah. I would encourage everybody to take a look at it. I would say like with everything, like, read with a skeptical eye um understand um the the what like what's being said that there is like an, another side of the story um you know uh it it is it is valuable to to understand this debate which has been going on for a very long time there's also like a full po- like a series of podcasts that was basically about the same subject that came out from like a national perspective not that long after this article was written um, there are, I can tell you, I, the, I, the teachers that I know have been talking about this quite a bit and it just kind of amplifying discussions that have been going on for quite a long time. Um, it is, it is a complicated subject, uh, much, and I would say probably more complicated in, in my opinion than, than Mandy McLaren makes it out to be. Um, but her, her articles are certainly worth reading, but yeah, I do think that they will result in a lot of discussions, uh, by the state legislature to get in the middle of some JCPS work. All right, last thing I wanted to talk about from the session standpoint is at that same Kentucky Chamber event that I was talking about when I was talking about income taxes, Senator Ralph Alvarado, our former Senator Ralph Alvarado, again pushed the idea of tort reform, which he said was one of his big priorities. Uh, tort reform, of course, would cap the amount that physicians must pay if they are convicted of malpractice, among other things. Uh, he has been pushing that bill for several years with limited success and you know now he's gone so uh you know i think this bill probably had its best chance to pass in a long time uh because of the changes in the gop caucus but its biggest champion has disappeared um so the the prospects for tort reform in the 2023 session are something else um i think that's worth watching jasmine what do you think the prospects are for tort reform next year i don't know you know i don't know a, a lot of Republicans support this, so I think you're right that it probably has its best chance to pass with, you know, numbers-wise. Um, but I don't know. I think Senator Alvarado was in the Senate for a long time, and before he left, he may have found, you know, the the new person to take it up. But I don't, I don't know that, so I'm not really sure. Yeah, and I'm sure like some interest groups are likely trying to find their next person or like working with Ralph yeah. Alvarado to find the next person. I'm sure that they will find somebody, but whether or not they're going to be as effective as Ralph Alvarado, who of course had the gavel in his hand, will be um, something that we'll, we'll need to watch. Um, so that's everything we wanted to talk about in the session. Uh, there's a lot of things that might happen. Uh, I think that that's kind of the main theme that I walked away from was like, you know, there aren't like a lot of like clear as day they want to do this this time maybe just that one income tax bill that they know for sure they're going to take up and basically everything else that we talked about was like maybe they'll do this uh a lot of things are are up Mm -hmm. in the air um this this time so we'll we'll be watching closely like we do every year uh to see what actions get taken during the short session um i guess one other thing to mention is i do believe that the democratic caucus is meeting 
like in the next few days to elect a new leadership. So we should know pretty soon who who those people will be. And that's likely to be pretty much all new, I think. Um, so we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, I do have a few other non-session related quick hits. The first of which is that Louisville Mayor-elect Craig Greenberg announced some of his highest level staff today. Today, again, is December the 13th. So first and foremost, David Kaplan is going to be chief of staff. Keisha Dorsey is going to be deputy chief of staff. Barbara Sexton-Smith is going to be the deputy mayor. Um, so that is a position that was envisioned in 2017's SB 222, which we called the War on Louisville Bill. Um, it you know says that there must be a deputy mayor. Doesn't really lay out much that they're supposed to do, um, but that's going to be Barbara Sexton Smith. So good for her. Um, Nicole George is going to be a deputy mayor for public health and services. David James will be the deputy mayor for emergency services, and Dana Maton will be the deputy mayor for the budget and human resources. So with that. That means, you know, with with David James and Keisha Dorsey both taking positions inside the administration, there are going to be at least two openings on the Metro Council coming up. Of course, Cassie Chambers Armstrong expressed interest in Morgan McGarvey's Senate seat. So it could be three uh, open Metro Council seats in the next few weeks. So um, potentially some some big shakeups there in Metro Council. So, Jasmine, anything to say about Metro Council or about Mayor-elect Craig Greenberg's staff? I, I don't think there were any like huge surprises with the staff. I, I think we knew that Barbara Sexton Smith would have a large role, especially since she was rumored to be running for mayor and then decided not to and, you know, work for Greenberg's campaign. Um, so no surprises there. I know, you know, I think a lot of people wish that there was a special election when there's Metro Council openings, but... I think those are those seats will be appointed. Um. They're not appointed. It's an even dumber system um, where all of the remaining Metro Council members select from a group of people who live in that area. So like zero people who actually live in the district. Well, I guess appointed by them is right. is what yeah, I mean. I, I guess that's fair. That that does still, I guess, suppose count as an appointment. Yeah, and I agree that it would be much better if we had a special election of some variety, um, you know, it would be great if we, you know, had just a two-person runoff. That would be like two elections. You know, I don't know, um, but the way that we do it does seem to be suboptimal. Um, yeah, I think that I'll, I mean the people I'm familiar with on the list of uh, Craig Greenberg staff are really good fits. Barbara Sexton Smith, great pick to be the uh, statutory deputy mayor with a uh, uh, amorphous and undefined job description. That seemed like <laughs> what she was doing on his campaign, and I think she did a good job at it. So there you go. Um, Keisha Dorsey, I think that she's been wanting to do uh, something like this for a while. You know, she's been trying to take on different kinds of responsibilities. So I think that that's, that's a good fit for her. I think David James, in that specific spot, you know, he, he of course, is a former police officer. Um, but I do think, like, emergency services seems to be, like, a pretty good fit for him so you know of the people i'm familiar with on here i think that they do seem like they're gonna make sense okay and the last thing i wanted to talk about was uh, so this is about charter schools and when the 2022 charter bill was passed it basically included requirements for several entities across the state to authorize charter schools and you know, jcps right now has been like working to figure out how they can like comply with this you know requirement that they passed in 2022 Northern Kentucky University uh, was named in the bill like they they kind of talked around JCPS. I think they said anybody with a consolidated government uh, or something like that. And that was like 
clearly you're talking about JCPS. In, in the bill, it actually mm-hmm. names like Northern Kentucky University, um, and, and they were they were like named as somebody who had to do it. And NKU at the time was like, uh, "Excuse us, what? What is this bill? What are you making us do?" And I think that they actually lobbied to have it changed. Like they were basically given the options. So they're like, "Let us read it and decide whether or not we actually want to do it. We haven't been involved in this at all." So they passed the bill and like gave them a little bit of time to like study it, read up on whether they wanted to be an authorizer, and then. T- Today, again, December the 13th, they decided not to do that. They decided they were not going to be our charter authorizer. Um, they, 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 you know, t- took advantage of their lobbying and, and said, you know, you gave us the option and we choose no. Um, so now basically there will be a, an entity, there will be an entity that is formed in Northern Kentucky to form this charter school. There will be a charter school that's authorized by somebody up there, but it will not be NKU. NKU, I, from what I could read in the link, NKU, NKY piece that I read, basically, uh, it seemed like their opposition came from the fact that they weren't included when the bill was written. So they, you know, they did not have any input. They did not feel like they were a part of the process. And then also just kind of general opposition, uh, to charter schools in the area and among the NKU community where they were like we don't we don't want to you know touch that that seems like a very controversial thing to do up here uh, so anything to say about charter schools Jasmine no well I I guess it's just not surprising to me that NKU wasn't really consulted about right. the bill <laughs> yeah I mean it is I mean just like talk I mean you know I I just talk to people just get to people like make sure that they know it's going like don't surprise people but you know that that's a trap that the republicans fall into time and time again for sure yeah i i I see what you're saying um all right um well that's it jasmine how can people get a hold of us they can find us on twitter and instagram at my old ky pod they can also like our facebook page and listen to our show on the podcast app of their choice we also have a newsletter you can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Demcast Network and the Ford Kentucky Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And we will see you in two weeks. <laughs>